Alright, we are continuing our look through the, uh, through the Bible at the Holy Spirit, and last week we started off talking about new life in the Spirit. Now that we've had this, we, we've had this opportunity to see all the ways that the Holy Spirit was working prior to Pentecost, and we saw what happened at Pentecost and the ripple effects of that. Now let's talk about when the Bible is discussing well, what comes next, now that you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And let's pick up a little bit, because we've got a slightly different cross-section of people here this morning. Why are so many churches called New Life? Anybody either remember that from last week or want to try to answer that question? Why are so many churches called New Life? Last week when I asked that question, somebody immediately jumped in going, I don't know. Yeah, we're, there's multiple times in Scripture where we're told that we're given new life in Christ. We're a new creation in Christ, been born again. How do you want to describe that? to non-Christians who have never heard that term, who have no idea. Because remember, Jesus spoke about being born again to Nicodemus, who had studied the Word of God, and Nicodemus said, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. So how do you explain that to people? Like, what? Like, new life. Okay, and they say, new life. What does that mean? I'm not putting this all on you, but I'm just like, of a seed that dies and brings new life, or Paul ever used the analogy of a seed bursting into something different. Yeah, I mean, you can use all sorts of different analogies, but to say, you can state one thing, but God wants you to take that one thing and be something new out of that. Now, if you want to pull out your Bibles, like I said, last week we talked about Jesus talking to Nicodemus. We looked at John 3, verses 1 through 4, 9 through 10. We talked about these verses. If you haven't already done so, open up your Bible and look at these. Uh, what did we talk about? What, if you remember from last week, what did we talk about with Nicodemus? Or if, if you weren't here last week, look at those verses. Tell me what, what jumps out at you from those verses. John 3, 1 through 4, 3, 9 through 10. and he's, uh, he genuinely has some respect for Jesus because he wants to talk to him. He asks him some, some questions and things, and yet <laughs> he's doing it at night. He's obviously more than a little scared. He's obviously got uh, a little bit of a, of a hiccup going in terms of his relationship with Christ. So when Christ gives him some responses, what's Nicodemus's response? When Christ says, here's what needs to happen, Nicodemus's take on it is, Yeah, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. What did we talk about last week with that? Nicodemus is, all he knows is the Old Testament, so clearly he's never heard anything about 
God breathing new life into people, right? Well, we went through and we cited all the places, basically, in the Old Testament where it indicated new life. Yeah, there's a gazillion times in the Old Testament where it talks about the Holy Spirit breathing new life into people, God changing people. What consistencies do you see between that and what you see in the Old Testament? Remember Hosea, where uh, God even told him to name his children not my people? Oh, wait, now they are my people, too. To talk about that moving from not relationship to relationship. Somebody do me a favor. Read me. Uh, let's start with Mark. Read me Ezekiel 18.31. And then the next person read me Ezekiel 36, 27, 25 through 27. And then the next person read me 1 Samuel 10.6. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed. And get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Sorry. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And the spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. So... What consistencies do you see between what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about and what we see going on in just even the smattering of things in the Old Testament? Transformation. Yeah, transformation, changing, and and, and especially in Ezekiel, what, what kind of what kind of emphasis do you get? It's not just you'll be changed. It's not you were A, now you're B. What what did, what does it seem to suggest about what A was like and what B is going to be like? It, it, it is. But is it just a red chair for a blue chair? Yeah. It's a positive change. Very positive change. Because what was your what was A like? What was your old life like? It's a heart of Yeah, it was sin that needs to be washed clean. It's a heart of stone. It's, it's a dead thing. And then what's B like? It's a new heart. It's a washed clean thing. It's a living thing instead of this heart of stone. So it's it's moving not just from one thing to another thing, but it's saying you're changing and being cleansed, being improved, being given a brand new good life. Elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, starting with Alex here, read me 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4, and then James 1, 17 to 22, and Brian, look at Ephesians 4, 22 to 32. I'm not going to have you read all of those. Um, Donna, look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. Um, at least, at least, uh, Alex, I want you to read yours out loud. The other ones, maybe just read your verses and summarize them, and when we get to them, I'll ask you what they're, what they're saying. But Alex, read me 1 Peter 1, 3-4. through 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth in, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Okay. What do we see going on there? What's Peter getting at about this new life? Great Absolutely. It's, it's this incredible thing, and it's, it's just waiting there for you. You just have to, just have to get there. It's, it's never going to, like, oh, it expired. It's like, no, it's not like that. And, 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 and Christ paid for it with his life's blood, right? Best buy. <laughs> yeah, best if used by. Uh, and then what is James getting at? 
James is talking about getting rid of um, all the evil and moral filth within us and taking hold of God's word that's planted in us, not just hearing what he says to do, but actually. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to change, not just change you, but it's supposed to change how you live it out. And then in Ephesians, Brian, what's what's Paul getting at in Ephesians? Um, so he's talking about um, taking off, um, throwing, throwing off the old self and putting up the new one, um, throwing off the things that you did before, and um, doing completely different things now. Yeah. Which actually dovetails rather nicely with James, doesn't it? Actually, the irony is how much Ephesians dovetails with James. It's a whole other Bible study. Anyway, um, do you want to maybe read uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17-20? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not calling men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, to be sent for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we become the righteousness of God. We are changed into something clean, and then what do we do with it? What's this new life supposed to be doing in us and through us? Okay. Why? What does new life in Christ have anything to do with us being ambassadors? Isn't that the argument that Peter uses in 1 Peter? There's such good lives among people who aren't Christians that they go, what? what's different about you? We hate looking different, except for when we love it. You know, we love it, I'm so different from you, except for the other 90% of our lives where we go, I'm no different than you. Go ahead, what were you going to say?
Well, yeah, and that's a, that's a good point because what you're left with is saying the world lives in a sense of, of immediacy. You know, it's like what, what seems right to us at this time, what seems right given the circumstances around us, and what seems like it'll do the best job of making us not dead, which we're scared of, right? Um, but the, to the Christian, the Christian goes, well, but I'm not just left with the circumstances around me. I don't just have whatever seems right to me. And death is kind of defanged. Yeah, I can still die, but it's not a scary thing. Even those times where you <coughs> you you have the the moxie, the chutzpah, the what have you, to to step out and, and share with people about Christ, is the working paradigm. You may not have even thought about it, but is the working paradigm. I'm just like you, but I know something really good that I think you would like and would mean something to you, i.e., salesman. Or is it? I am not like you anymore. I am not from this place, and I don't see this place as my home. This is my mission field. Let me tell you about my home. Because I would say, tacitly, a lot of churches, a lot of Christians, think of ourselves as salespeople with a really good product. I'm from this place, I understand this place, I am this place, and let me tell you a better version of this place. As opposed to, I'm not from this place anymore. I don't want to think like this place. Let me tell you about the place I am from. In a healthy way. In a healthy way. But last week, I mean, all this is just getting back to what we were talking about last week so that everybody's caught up. Last week, we ended by saying, wait, we skipped some verses, right? And I promised Brian that we would actually read these verses. So, Brian, I don't even care if you're the last person or not. You're reading these. Brian, read me John 3, right. 5 through 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, so what's the, the crucial importance of the Holy Spirit at this stage in our salvation? Why why does Jesus use the word Spirit here? What is he saying? What's he doing? What's he doing? It's a new Spirit. Renewing of the Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is, is a new spirit that hasn't been with you, but now he is. It's renewing your spirit. Okay, what else? It's the spirit who's giving you new life, right? And you have to be born again of the spirit. So what on earth is that? How, why does the Holy Spirit give us new life through new birth? Why can't the spirit just give you an improvement of your existing life? You've heard me say that a gazillion times in the last decade and a half, that God doesn't want to improve your life. He wants to give you a whole new one. Why? Can't God just come and fix it? 
is. Conceit is in death. I mean, you can't. God could, but the, the way He's choosing to do this is not to revive the dead because it still stems from death. But um, He let's say animate the dead because I do think He wants to revive the dead. Okay, animate the dead. Very much better. Um, but He does want generation. <coughs> And he's choosing to do so about a, a new life versus one that is tainted by death. Okay. Why? You're right. Why does this work? Because he chooses to do it this way. This is the avenue with which he's doing it. I get it. Why? Yeah. Create kind of a clean division from your old life where you were kind of the master was either yourself or the things of this world to a new life where you have just everything is different. Like you. You have a different purpose. You have different everything. So it's, it's kind of a clearer division as opposed to just improving a couple things in your life. Like, it's a radical transformation of who you are. Yeah. It's, it's an identity change, but it's, it's also a, a new, something that has to die, too. It's not just, just a new thing. The other thing has to die. Isn't that, isn't that what he got? Isn't that what he was saying back in Genesis? <laughs> you said something has to die. I'll take that death, but still, you have to die. What you were before, that's a Jesus suggests in John 14, 15 through 17. I don't know who's next. Nancy, I think, is next. What does Jesus suggest? John 14, 15 through 17. If you, if you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. So what is Jesus suggesting about the world and the world's perspective on having the Holy Spirit living in them? In these verses. They're not looking for him. And even when he acts, well, even when the Holy Spirit is as overt as he ever is, let's hypothetically say he swoops in sometime, makes thunderous noise, great hulking wind, inside a house, people start talking language they don't know, and their heads are on fire. Could you imagine that there might even be people who say, oh, those people are drunk. Because if you've ever seen a drunk person, that's what happens, right? The whole room is filled with wind and their heads are on fire and they can suddenly talk in languages they don't know. Yeah, no. It's like, it's like we were talking about um, feelings and things help people rationalize that away. Um, miraculously. They just cannot comprehend or see or see. We, we love to compartmentalize, don't we? We love to sit there and go, this is this. This is the way science works. This is the way God works. God works over here, because my denomination says so. No, 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 God works this way, because my denomination says this. It's like, we love compartmentalizing things away so that we say, I, I understand it, or I can better control it. But just because the Holy Spirit is working doesn't necessarily mean that people are automatically going to get it. And Jesus says, you know, in fact, the world can't 
get it. It's an unregenerated world. Why might an unregenerated world be unable to accept or even perceive the working of the Holy Spirit? If they're not changed. Okay. The Holy Spirit is what changes you, apparently, because isn't that what we just said? It's the Holy Spirit that's giving the new life? Well, and he talks about putting new wine in old wine skins. You know, it just, it, it, you do that, it, it will then burst and breaks And and the other thing, not just not just capacity, but also a, there's a brittleness to an old wineskin and things. There's just the thing you go. Once you get this new flowing spirit, if it doesn't change you, you can't you can't handle it. What were you gonna say? Oh, interesting. Nice flatland analogy. So yeah, it's like two D versus three D. The idea of saying suddenly your life takes on a completely new dimension that you couldn't even fathom before. I mean, how many times does Paul talk? Does Jesus talk about this is foolishness to people who don't have regeneration. This is foolishness to people who don't have the Lord in their lives. They're not necessarily going to get this. Or, I think Gary and I were talking the other day, we used the analogy of, of God saying, I don't I don't want to, I can, I can come upon people for a moment, I can give them empowerment, I can give them leading things, but I don't want to reside in a dirty house. You know, I, I can be a house guest in a dirty, broken house, I, I will not be a resident in a dirty, broken house. So God says, I, I have to clean the house. I have to change the house before I will live in this house. It needs to, it, it, you wouldn't be able to do this. You wouldn't be able to, to have the capacity to have the Holy Spirit in you and living in you and in the presence of God. What was people's reaction in the Old Testament to perceiving that they were in the presence of God? That's even angels, right? Didn't the people in the Old Testament, didn't we talk about this last week in the sermon? The people in the Old Testament said, Well, I perceive the very presence of God. What a wonderful argument for a prophet. But we'll stand between us and the very presence of God. Because we don't want to be in the presence of God. In fact, in John 16, 7, who's got, uh, Sarah? John 16, 7. What does Jesus say? Which is interesting. We talked about John 16 and 7 the other week. But here, one thing we didn't talk about is that Jesus actually says the Holy Spirit couldn't permanently indwell you. He's not going to come unless I leave. And we know that that's not that they can't be at the same place at the same time because Jesus breathes his spirit on people. We, we know that. Yeah. I mean, my, my version just says he will not, not he could not. Okay, that he will not send the Holy Spirit that that's not going to happen until I leave. And I don't think it's the lack of presence of God or the lack of presence of Christ. I think the key thing is, is unless we go through the whole cross thing, unless we, unless we pray, unless we, we change you, unless you are redeemed, we'd be pointless to send the Holy Spirit this way. Yeah. Paraclete. We talked about that the other day. Right, so that's like the, the armor. Yeah, the, the standing beside you and, and speaking from alongside of you. Um, how, this is probably not actually my work, but 
coming out of that being is a helper. I know they're two different words, but do they do they interact at all? That's an interesting question. I don't know that I've ever really thought about it because, yeah, they're they're two very different kinds of words. But because what obviously one is he, 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 yeah, um, and and there is a Greek word for one who helps. Um, so this is a little this is a little different. This is specifically more that advocate, somebody coming alongside and thing. I suppose if there is a relationship, it's this is doing it right that. Didn't end up being so right, yeah. But we can we can talk about that later. Somebody read me this funky little teaching moment since we're here in John 16. Somebody and by somebody I mean Gary. Somebody read me John 16 8 through 11. Let's continue on in that section, following what Sarah just read. When he comes, he will commit the Lord with guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men did not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to. Father, where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. If you don't, if you're not already there, maybe go there so you can be looking at these verses while I'm talking about this stuff. How are the Holy Spirit's actions here consistent with this overall biblical ministry? Just overview. Does this sound like what we talked about the Holy Spirit doing in the, in, in, in the Bible? How so? Okay. Okay, maybe let's break down a little bit. What three things is he convicting the world of here? And, and I should, important safety tip. When I use the term convicting, as, as Christians nowadays, we tend to use that word meaning that the Holy Spirit has laid his, his burden on my heart and has convicted me of sin, and now I feel the sin, and he's encouraging me to change, and now I feel the need to change. That is, that is one use of the term conviction, right? Is that, what, is that what you mean in a secular sense when you talk about somebody being convicted of a crime? So when we're talking about this word conviction here, I don't want you just to hear that there is that sense of I feel morally convicted and thus I would want to change. But there's this broader sense of not everybody who's convicted of a crime says, and yes, this lays on my heart and I feel the need to repent. Not necessarily. How, what what does conviction mean? To know that uh, something is certain. So to know that the sin is certain. To know that righteousness is certain. To know that the judgment is certain. Like that it that it's that from to heaven Remember the other week we talked about the Holy, there are verses that suggest the Holy Spirit is both standing with us in the courtroom, saying, "Yes, this person. I'm the defense attorney. This person is." Is, is somebody that is, is changed from the inside out. And the Holy Spirit is also in the courtroom as the prosecuting attorney saying, nope, this person is in sin. This is, this is not a healthy thing, and this, this is not part of the people of God. That the Holy Spirit at any given point is on either side of that, because what the Holy Spirit is doing is not having multiple personalities in the courtroom, but it's rather saying, my job is to say, this is truth about this person. Before the before the judge, let me let me show you what is inside. If that inside is unregenerated, if that inside is dead, then I am sharing to everybody concerned. This person is dead inside. If this person is not dead, if this person is alive in Christ, 
I am showing this is what's actually there. All the nifty stuff in the world that you do doesn't matter when you're standing in the courtroom and the Holy Spirit is like, this, I plumb the depths. Here's what this person is. Anyway, so first thing, convict the world of guilt in regard to sin because men do not believe in me. How does the Holy Spirit convict the world of this? Because <laughs> he's the Holy Spirit. Yes. How does he do that? Because these verses in and themselves are not necessarily going to answer this question, but it's so easy for us to read this and hear this three-part thing and go, yep, that's cool, and move on and never really think about it. How does the Holy Spirit convict the world of guilt in regard to sin because men don't believe in Christ? And, and we're told in Scripture that the Holy Spirit will demonstrate your guilt, show you the guilt. Okay, that's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a collection of people like, so. Uh, I think Donna actually had her hand up first. Donna, what were you going to say? Well, I, I think of like, how is it wisdom calling out the streets in the sense that it's not going to And I suppose you can even point to, to Romans 1 and say, the Holy Spirit's even going, there's an imago dei in all of this going, you know, there's a part of you that knows what you were created to do and are consciously not doing this. Also the word, because the word is true. And it's not only true, but it's living and active, and the Holy Spirit brings it to life in us. specifically in this same discussion with Nicodemus in John 3, right? Christ did say, the, the world stands condemned already if it doesn't believe in me. I, I don't even have to condemn the world. The, the world stands condemned because that's, that's, the, that's the default, is death. Okay? Convict the world of guilt in regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. What does he say? What does he get there with that? Because he seems to suggest, because he says it in one clump and then he breaks it down in these three, seems to suggest that is something at least nuancedly slightly different than the first one, isn't it? Almost uh, attributed to what James says, if you know the good you ought to do is a sin, and, and just the idea that, well, we know we know what we should do, not necessarily just what we shouldn't do. Okay. Anybody want to piggyback on it? Yeah. No, I was going to say, and, and it reminds me of the, um, the the guys on the walk to Emmaus who didn't realize it was Jesus until after he was gone, and there was that there was that sadness or longing in their heart of like, oh, we missed it. Like, we so they recognize what it was, and they also recognize when we don't have it. And it is interesting because he's like, okay, 
the Holy Spirit is going to sit there and go, this is not the path you're supposed to be on. And there's a part of you that knows that until you get yourself so jaded to it that you refuse to see it anymore. Is it conceivably possible to so jade yourself to things that even though God is prodding you, you just go, I can't even see that anymore? Yeah. But only in, like, biblical people like Pharaoh and, you know, stuff like that. There's other real people that you know don't ever get that far. Yeah, sure we do. Hebrews warns about that. But here it's talking about, okay, the Holy Spirit also goes, this is the path you are supposed to be walking on. Let me show you. And Jesus says, bear in mind, there's going to come a time where I'm not here saying, guys, do this. I'm not here saying, walk where I walk. Discipling, right? Walk where I walk. Step where I step. Once Jesus is gone, he can't say, well, walk where I'm walking. Step where I'm stepping. Because he's not stepping there anymore. But the Holy Spirit can, can come and say, let me show you where to walk. Let me show you where to step. Let me bring the word to life and show you these things through the word. Let me speak through brothers and sisters in Christ and show you. But an amazing number of us goes, I am never really much of a Bible reader, and I don't want to interact with people and have them tell me. And I just, I, I pray, dear Lord, help me, and then I go on with my day. And you just go, the Holy Spirit has so many avenues where he is trying to say, let me show you where to walk. That we shut down in our lives and then say, I just feel like I'm foundering and I don't know why. Why might that be? The Holy Spirit is trying, continually, consistently showing you where to walk, how to walk, why to walk there. for that. But you're right. We're totally selling it short if that's where we land. If, if, that's, if that's all it is. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we have there, there's a, t a temptation that comes up and, and then um, the Holy Spirit says, no, let's let's go this way. And you say, yeah, I agree with you. Let's not, let's avoid that. And that's a good thing. Yep. Absolutely. But if that's all it is. If, if that's all it is, then you just you spend all of your time just trying to make sure that you don't mess up. Think, think about like, Well, if I could throw out another thought. Okay, because I want to piggyback on what you just said there. Well, go ahead. Okay, so Liam will come home and school will ask him how he'll say, well, I didn't get any pens taken today, which means getting in trouble. Right. He's like, I didn't get in trouble today. And I'm like, kind of crestfallen because, on the one hand, that's a good thing. Sure. But I want him to be able to, like, live joyfully and get past that point. Think of it this way. Exactly. Think of it this way in relationships. Let's say Keldon says, I say, so how's everything going with, with Sherry? And he says, it's great. I haven't stepped on any relational landmines in weeks. I, 
I successfully avoid all the things that I'm like, oh, this is going to go bad, this is going to go bad, this is going to go bad, and it didn't. That's a healthy relationship, yes? I'm consciously, constantly, always trying to make sure I don't fall in a pit. That's my relationship. Is that healthy? As opposed to, as opposed to, I ask Mark, how's your relationship with Nikki? He goes, it's great. It's all roses. It's joy. I mean, we have had so much fun. We enjoy it all the time. It is great. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do, and it's awesome. We do so many great things. It's wonderful. Yeah. That's a healthy relationship, yes? Because it's all focused on all the really nice feeling things. Or is maybe a healthier way of looking at this, the idea of going, I want to avoid unhealthy things, and I want to seek out healthy things. I want to do these both. I want to be aware of where the pitfalls are, so I don't fall into those. And I want to make sure that I do the positive things that build up and, and healthify my relationship. That's a, that's a good combo, isn't it? And Jesus says, yeah, the Holy Spirit's doing both sides of that in you. What were you going to say, Sarah? Yeah, I was going to say, I know a lot of like, ministries at college are just like, God is love, he's great. Because they don't talk about the sin or anything at all. And it's just like, God is love, God is love, yeah, vacuous is a perfect word for it because you sit there and you go, it's 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 like saying you know I've got a, I've got plans for a wonderful cathedral that I'm going to build. You go out of what? Nothing. Well, then you got great plans, but is that what about you? I had no plans whatsoever, and I focused only on. Rancid goo. It's like, well, that's not going to be a nice one either. Or think about how many ministries, think about how many ministries focus on only on warm fuzzies versus how many ministries focus only on picketing people's cemeteries to say you're a horrible, horrible person. You just go, you know what? You'd probably be a healthier ministry if you focused on what is right and good and focused on shedding. All those things that are not helpful. In fact, I think we've even read about that so far today, haven't we? Where the Holy Spirit's calling us to focus on what is healthy and good and to consciously rid ourselves of the dead things that are unhealthy and unedifying. Then the last one, convict the world of guilt in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What, what's that? I mean, these two, you can go, well, this is flip sides of a healthy relationship with God. And go, well, what's this about? see that as more of a, a conviction or reassurance more than anything of some confidence knowing that um, you understand your sin, but you also understand God's righteousness, and because of that I can go forward and do ministry. Okay. Absolutely. Anything else? Yeah. Maybe like this is like the world as a whole, because like society and stuff like there's a lot of there's a lot of bad things. There's a lot of things that as Christians we realize are sin and negative things. That the world is just like, oh, this is fine. This is a good thing. And the prince of the world, Satan, is Remind me. The other day we talked about this. When asked specifically, or when he speaks specifically about why he came to the world, statistically, most often Jesus said. Yeah, to destroy the works of Satan, right? Over and over again in the New Testament we're told he came to destroy the works of Satan. He destroyed the works of the devil. The, he took the devil's kingdom away. He defanged sin and death and, and all of it. It's like, 
over and over again, we're told in Scripture, Jesus' work changed the situation. Is Satan still wandering the earth? Yes. Is he still dangerous? Yes. <coughs> Not for you, though. It, it, all he can do is kill you. But he can't kill your spirit. He can't kill your soul. It doesn't work like that. And over and over again, everything that Satan has spent centuries building in this place as the prince of this world, Jesus said, yeah, I'm uh, taking that all away. That's all gone now. Yeah. And, and remember what you're going to say, because I want to say this. Because remember, what was what was it that Satan said? If you eat from this tree, you'll know that you'll, you'll come to know. You come to know like God. You come to be like God in that you will good and evil, right? You will know good and you will know evil, and you'll know the difference between them. And you go, whoa! I just found out I'm on the wrong side of it. And Christ goes, right. The Holy Spirit will give you a knowledge of good and evil, and you'll be on the right side of it. The absolute flip-flop of that initial breakage. Yes. That's basically what I was going to say. It just kind of in the, um, the beginning of uh, this little section of But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, then the helper is going to come to you. So what he's saying is, okay, I've prepared you. And now you have understanding of one and two there. And in doing that, it really does take the things out of Satan. And, and it is an interesting when Jesus says it is actually to your advantage if the guy that you guys like the most goes away. It is actually to your advantage if this happens. That is so not what we would ask for. No, that the disciples were, no, may it never be. May it, don't do this. I will never. I'll take out my sword and prevent you from being taken. Jesus says, do you not understand the idea of the word advantageous? To you guys, you think advantageous is the thing that is most what I want to happen. When I, sit, when I think advantageous, I think the thing that you guys most need. Trust me, it is advantageous that I die on the cross, that you be cleansed from your sin, and that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you. Trust me, it's advantageous. And like any good parent, I want, he wants us to be able to stand on our own feet and see how to do some of these things. He's, he's brought this out for it, and now he's sending us to do what he's oh, yeah. out for. <laughs> that, is, that is also the consistent biblical thing, isn't it? Like, boy. Hope somebody can change the world. Yeah, can we pray that somebody change the world? Sure, let's pray. Lord, send, send somebody to change the world. Hey, look, you guys are here. I send you. But I send you filled with God's power and authority. Okay, how does Paul explain this process of moving from death to life? Of, 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 well, how does he explain this? Uh, I have no idea where we're at now. Uh, Mark, why don't you take it? Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Or Megan, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. Or Wendy, Ephesians 6, 4. Or Romans 6, 4. I don't know what I just said. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations, 
that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Ephesians 2, 4 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Romans 6 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism and into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the of life. So this goes back to that initial question. How would you describe this to non-Christians? How is Paul trying to express this idea? How would you summarize this? What's he saying is going on here? He says it fairly consistently. Yeah. This is the whole point of baptism, isn't it? You go down a dead thing and you come up out of the waters a living thing, just like you're popping up out of a grave, right? Isn't that, the, isn't that the whole mental image of coming up out of the water? It's like you're coming up out of your grave? Jesus says, yeah, let me show you what that looks like. Right? I mean, Paul says, you, you used to be dead. Take all that stuff off by God's grace while you were dead, while you were sinning, while you were blissfully sinning, ignorantly sinning. God says, let me bring you life. I'm willing to die to bring you life. Let me pull you up out of the grave. This is public declaration of this in baptism. How is this new life supposed to be fundamentally different from your old life? I mean, you've already seen this in some of the other verses that he's talked about. How is it supposed to be different? What's the earmarks of this? Seek the things above, which goes back to that whole concept of the embassy. I'm not just a salesman. I'm an ambassador pointing you to, to my kingdom that I'm actually from now. You know, seeking the things above. What else? What does seeking the things above make you look like when you're interacting with people? How so? Give me any examples of anything we've talked about, of anything that the Holy Spirit is supposed to bring to the surface that, has, that could be fruit to show that you are different. You are cheating by going to the list, aren't you? <laughs> but yes! Love, joy, peace. And you go, yep, 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 yep. Instead of saying, yep, 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 yep. Do we live that out? As we're interacting with people, and you go, yes, I love my wife, and I have joy that my children are home, and I have peace when we're all struggling. And you go, right. What about when Brian comes up and kicks me in the shins? As he is wont to do. I can't help it. I know. It's, it's like foot Tourette's. So, so he comes up and kicks me in the shins. Do I have joy? Do I have peace? Do I have love? As I, do, I have, do I have that as the fruit of the Spirit when the world around me suggests that's the, not the natural reaction? Do I have this sort of godly change in me that makes other non-Christians say, what's different about you? Right? that you're not living the way I'm living. It's supposed to be fundamentally different. Divisions, I'm not supposed to be doing that. Responding to evil with evil, I'm not supposed to be doing that. Not just because there's a laundry list of things I'm trying to checkbox, but because this new life is supposed to be bubbling forth. It's supposed to be changing me. I'm supposed to be living that out. So what exactly is Jesus talking about in John 3, 5, when he says you need to be born of water and the Spirit? And I will give this hint, important safety tip. There are no texts from that era that use the phrase born of water to talk about natural birth. It's not impossible, 
Jesus is forever coining new phrases. Paul, especially, is forever coining new words and things. But there's nothing in the first century or before that that suggests anybody talked about it as amniotic fluid. Need to be born of water and of spirit. Doesn't mean it could be talking about natural stuff. What else could be talking about? If so, is he saying you have to be baptized in order to be saved? Because there's other verses that suggest not that. That's the natural thing to do when you're saved, but is Jesus saying you must be baptized in order to be saved? What's the point of baptism? Symbol of new life, and not just new life, but... what? It, pardon me? It's a public symbol. It's not just a symbol of new life, it's also a symbol of... I'm, that part of me is dead now, right? Paul is very big on in trying to present a very positive image of baptism. He's like, it's all about death. You know, in a good way. Yeah. How's the public symbol thing match with the, the story that you give me? Like, it, well, it, you could argue that he didn't baptize himself. That was... I no. agree there were two of them. But, right. like, but it, I, I think it would go back to it. I mean, I'm going to say, maybe in this case, just to clarify and not get lost on this too much. No, no, no. Think of it more as what Augustine talked about as external, external expression of an internal change. And so, yes, it's supposed to be done publicly, but could two people do it? Sure. Yeah. But if there's, if there's only two of you in the whole desert, don't go, well, I guess we can't do baptism. Sure you could. But if there's 40 of you, why do it just two of you? Maybe if they're going back to the same church, but they weren't going to the same place, right? No. no. In fact, that's the whole point. They'll just, just not there anymore, eventually. So. All right. Let's do, a, let's do a case in point. Ran across an interesting argument uh, online between Catholics and evangelicals over what John 3.5 is saying. The Catholic argument was that this verse is talking about the transformation brought about by God's grace through baptism at the hands of a valid, ordained priest in the Catholic Church. You have to have gone through the Catholic Church and have to have gone through a priest. To them, there is no regeneration unless there's water baptism by the correct, authorized church authorities. Right? Okay, I always see some people shaking their heads. What does the evangelical, what's the evangelical response to this? Okay, why? What do they see as the problem with this? I mean, not just what it should be, because now we're doing the two halves again. Yeah, this is what we are talking about. What, what are they saying? What would an evangelical non-Catholic say is, why is this not, why is this not healthy? What do they see going on here? Yeah. Jesus was not baptized by an ordained Catholic priest. Does that mean his baptism was not Catholic? He wasn't, he wasn't even baptized by an ordained Jewish priest. No. Okay. And not in a good way. Because organized religion isn't necessarily bad. It's just inherently trippy uppy. But yeah, evangelicals go, this is hierarchy. This is this is ritualism. This is if you if you do it this way in our church, then you've done it. And it, there's nothing internal going on here. And everything in scripture about baptism is all about it's an external expression of an internal something or other. So the evangelicals go, no, 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 no. Which is interesting. Because the evangelical stance that was expressed is that this verse is 
talking about this transformation that goes on when somebody comes to faith. You know, believe in the, uh, uh, believe in the name of the Lord. Confess. Anyway, yes. Believe in your heart. Confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. There. That's what this verse is talking about. Genuine heart change. To which Catholics go, wait a minute. You're saying there's no regeneration unless God's, you get this personal commitment? Yeah, and the Catholics go, well, what? That's anarchy. Everybody can just fling themselves into the kingdom of God on their own volition. They can't do that. Plus, what? You're just dumping the whole water thing all together? They're even bringing that up here? It's not uncommon. The first Anabaptists, though, it was interesting. I don't think you can baptize yourself. It was interesting. The first Anabaptists in Germany said, tell you what, you baptize me, and then I will baptize you. And we will be the first Anabaptist leaders. But no, I can't. actually I, baptize himself. I, I know, and that's what I'm saying. The, 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 that, that's exactly, that's my point. I'm agreeing okay. with you, yeah. Okay. The, the Anabaptists would sit there and go, Rather than I'll just baptize myself and call me, you know, a new a new creation. I will baptize you. You will baptize me, and then we can baptize everybody else as this goes on. And you go because we want to make this statement, but we want to make it that that we're moving from death to life. And as a dead guy, I can't necessarily baptize myself with that. So yeah, I, I see what you're going with that. So help me out here. Given what we've read in Scripture, even just today. How would you speak to both sides about this? How might you say to both sides, I think you're missing some crucial bits here? How would you describe that new birth? How would you describe what's... If you're, if you're talking to this particular Catholic and that particular evangelical, what might you say to help flush this out a bit? Yeah, go ahead. I don't know how much this is actually No, uh, um, No one ever knows that when you walk into these things. Um, but Jesus does talk about living water. Okay. But that living water is supposed to change you, right? Okay. What? How would you describe this? I mean, is there supposed to be baptism, or is baptism just a hey, you know, whatever? It's really talking about inward change, or no? It's baptism is really crucially important. Inward change, you know, whatever. How would you describe this? How would you tell both these people? Yeah. The middle ground. Baptism is very important, and the change is very important. Okay, but which is the required one, and which is the one that isn't so required? They're both extremely important. Okay, I would say yes. We do use the word required, thank you. You do use the word required as, this is the thing I have to do or else I don't get the thing I want. Is that the way the Bible necessarily sees the term requirement? God, does God require us to live out our salvation in fear and trembling? Because if we don't, then we lose it, right? Isn't that the way he's getting at you? No, it's just, I expect you to do this. This is your obligation, go. But it's not required, right? Totally required. So if I don't do it, penalty. Don't really want God. Ironically, so you're, you're missing the point at that point. 
Just like asking for a prophet because you want to hear the words of God. No, because you don't want to hear the words from God. Asking, I want to know what's required. You go, what, so that you know that you're doing it right? No, so that you, this is why I never give study guides as a, as a teacher. I hate study guides because study guides don't tell you what to study. Study guides tell you what not to study, right? Because if it's not on the study guide, apparently those notes I don't need to care about. So when people go, what do I need to study? I always say, your notes and your text. Like, well, that's not fair. I mean, what's the important stuff? Oh, so you think half the stuff I said, I was just, I'm getting paid by the hour? That's like, well, I'm just adding it. It's all important. If it wasn't important, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been teaching it. And people always go, oh, I hate logic class. So, um, but that's the thing is, I get back to, is it required to go, yes. Is it required to do, to have repentance without the external demonstration of that, without the, the public expression of that, without following through on what God has told us to do is, at best, silly. To have baptism without repentance is wrong by definition. It, if you go, well, the whole point of baptism is showing that I died and rose again with Christ. You go, if you haven't done that, then you know, apparently you're just getting moist. It's not baptism. How about, how about it be, and this is where I go back to Augustine, how about it's an external expression of an internal truth, of an internal change that God has made in you? How about we do both of these and see both of these as important? And not just because baptism is a ritual that's important, but because all this is supposed to be indicative. Isn't everything we've been talking about today supposed to be indicative of life change? of moving from death to life. It's not just a hoop to jump through, or a prayer to speak, or whatever. It's life change. It's the Holy Spirit breathing new life into you. It's living this out in a different sort of way. So, end with one last funky teaching moment. Think of it like a math equation, okay? Because math is a beautiful thing. Love math. If you don't love math, talk to me later. Love math. Think about it as Jesus giving us two chunks of red letter bits and put them together. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. It cannot happen. You will not see it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But whoever doesn't believe already stands condemned, right? They're already in the default of being dead because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There's only two ways that you can stand. You come out of the womb dead. Or at some point you move to life, right? Then we'll take another red letter part from Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give him to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life, which we already actually just mentioned. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God. He will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, their place will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Right? Yes? Um, um, I'm just wondering, does vile have any other like specific meaning? Because to me, it's just kind of like the good people and all the rest of the things seem to have some kind of specific meaning. It, 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 um, yes. I, I'd have to go back to double check, but if I remember correctly, I think it's, it's in the um, you are doing this in, in a you kind of wrong way. You are, just like uh, the word wicked, uh, oftentimes there's a couple different Greek words that the word wicked is pointing to. Some of it is 
depravity, and some of it is just unjust. You are not doing what is just. How is your file to be Green Bay Packer fans? Oh, see? Oh, harsh. Okay, sermon illustration for Eric today. Okay, but these are two different things. So put that together in a math equation. If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you only die once. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about it that way. But isn't that the math equation that Jesus is giving? You are born, and if that's the only time that you are born, there is a second death waiting for you. But if you're born twice, you don't ever have to worry about that second death. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I didn't come up with that equation. There's other smarter people than me, so give them credit. But if that's true, how should that inspire us on a daily basis? If that math equation really is red letter to you, that's Jesus saying that, how should that affect how you live on a daily basis? That is not a rhetorical question. Okay, I'll toss out an easy one and be thinking about more complicated things on a personal level. Easy one. If that's true, all the people who are only born once will die twice, and you are ambassadors of a new kingdom, what does that suggest that you should do? You should probably be telling people about that one. If you knew that if you knew the building was on fire, wouldn't you tell people? If you knew the world is on fire, wouldn't you tell people? No! You don't. You should. But we often don't. So, okay, on one level, okay, on a more personal level, if this is genuinely true, how should that change the way you live on a daily basis? Giving you so much time to think about it. That you're only dying once? That you're living in a new a new life? That God is that good. That God is that good? It also says, to him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost. So maybe this isn't the thing we're supposed to do on our own. This is maybe something we're supposed to rely on Jesus for help. Huh. In fact, remember when we talked about that at length last week? We were talking about, our, is this the Holy Spirit working on us, or is this us doing it? Is this God, is God's volition? Is this Christ working the cross that enables us? To which the answer is, uh-huh. Yeah, we're supposed to work out our fear and trembling. Or to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? For it is God's Spirit working in you, right? So, are we supposed to be living this out in our own strength? No. So God is doing this. Yes, so we don't have to be living it out. You absolutely need to be living it out. Just not in your own strength, right? If there's a theme, I guess, for this morning. is that we tend to want to lurch to one extreme or to another. And so often in the scripture, it's like, well, no, you goomba. It's both and. Am I supposed to do it or is God doing it? Yes. Are we supposed to focus on doing right or not doing wrong? Yes. Am I supposed to focus on following God's ritual directives or living out the, a, a new life in Christ? Yes. Am I supposed to be internally changed or externally acting? Yes. Because you have new life in Christ. That is never something you hide under a bushel. It's never something you go into a corner and, and, and live out and never live out in, in the real world. We have new life in Christ. It should change us, right? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that we're not just the sum total of our, our fleshliness. We're not just what we came out of the womb as. Lord, I thank you that you wish us to be repentant of that, to turn away from that, and in your strength, through your work on the cross, 
with your Holy Spirit moving us into new life and purchasing us adoption through Christ's blood, I pray. Working us to help us be different people and to live as different people with the heart that you give us. Let that be our new nature so that what we're doing, we do because we're doing it naturally. Give this to you in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.